Hope you guys enjoyed uh, your sharing time with each other. I, uh, you know, something I'm, I've been at Mercy Hill now for about a year and a half, and that was one of the first things I noticed was normally when, I, when I've been at churches during the meet and greet, I frankly think it's kind of annoying. It's like, it seems kind of like a waste of time because you turn around, you shake someone's hands, and you, you don't say anything. And then you don't talk to them afterwards, and it's just kind of formality. Um, but here, and I, I, the, the reason I thought of this was because there's, there was a staff guy, he was on Twitter. And so Twitter is just a way to like share your thoughts and be narcissistic. And uh, uh, I'm, no, there are good uses for it. I, I'm on Twitter. Um, and, uh, anyway, so he was just saying, oh, I, I don't like meet and greets at big churches. And I was like, I agree with that. But at Mercy Hill, it's been different at Mercy Hill. I've enjoyed it. There just seems to be a warmth and I feel like I'm really getting to talk to someone and people are open to talking. Um, so I just told him that, you know, it's, it's small at small churches. It's better, uh, because you guys know each other. There's no, there's less anonym, anonymity, um, and so I just have been really blessed. That's just one example, I think, of how God is at work at Mercy Hill, creating us into a community of people who are genuinely interested in other people. At least that's, that's what I've experienced. And uh, that's what I'm asking the Lord to do in me. So, uh, yeah, so my name is Paul Nunez. And um, I uh, am, uh, let's see, I'm on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, so I think when Steve heard that and we talked, he, I told him I was interested in preaching. It's something that uh, I've always valued, and it's something that I aspire to. And so he's given me, this is my second opportunity to come up here. Uh, and uh, so I'm excited about that. But I, have, I do work in full-time ministry with my wife, Jamie. We've been on staff for, well, we've been married for five years, and we have a son who's uh, 16 months. Um, and I've been on, we've been on staff for eight years which is kind of an odd number of years because you're, you haven't been on long enough to be experienced yet, but you're also not a rookie anymore. And, uh, and so I don't really have that excuse, you know, if, like, I don't know, like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm supposed to know what I'm doing, um, which is unfortunate because I really feel that way. Um, but you know, I, I, um, this process of, of giving a sermon is, uh, has shown me that preaching is hard. It is hard. Um, because if you think about what preaching is, is you, you are taking the Bible, and let's be honest, this isn't always easy to understand. And so you've you got to interpret it and present it in a way that's clear. And then you got to, and the purpose of preaching is to then um, make God look amazing uh, to a group of people who have a hard time seeing God as amazing when you yourself are in that same predicament. And so to me, uh, preaching, it's like, it's like a little death every time that you go up here to preach. It's hard. And so it just made me appreciate um, Steve and other pastors who week after week get up here to preach the word of God to us. Um, and reminded me to to pray for him and to pray for for our leaders who who teach the word. But I will say this: that um, what the passage we're in is is Isaiah, and so uh, this passage has met me 
very powerfully. And, and while I'm, I'm, we're setting up, uh, if you need a Bible, I'm going to have them come down the aisle. So just raise your hand if you need a Bible. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 36 through 37. And I'm excited to, to preach because this passage, Steve, Steve shared it, told me to preach on this about a month ago. And it has really met me um, at a time in my life where I'm experiencing some of the, the most... I'm experiencing some of the strongest trials that I've been through in ministry. Um, because what this passage is about is it's about Israel at one of the darkest hours of their history. And it's, it's actually a break from the typical uh, writings of Isaiah. Isaiah is a book of prophecy. So there's a lot of kind of poetic pro, uh, poetic. Uh, Sayings. There's a lot of just prose about what God is going to do, uh, what he said. But there's a break, and we, we come across this story. It's actually several stories um, that uh, kind of show what actually happened in history to Israelite. And I think the reason why Isaiah tells this story, because it's the third time that we that this story is told in the Bible. So it's not like people aren't familiar with it. But I think this story is going to illustrate um, everything that Isaiah has been talking about up to this point. Namely, um, what does it mean to trust God? Because that's the that's kind of the battle cry of Isaiah. And really the battle cry of the Bible is put your faith in God. Um, don't trust in other things. Don't rely on yourself. Trust in God um, during the hardest times. Trust in me when, it, when it's hard to trust in me. Um, and so the problem is, is that faith in, in, is a concept that's hard to kind of wrap our minds around. What does it mean to have faith? Because on one hand, it's, we might say it's belief. We're supposed to believe in God, right? Uh, John 3.16, God gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Um, but then, then uh, the Bible kind of complicates it a little bit because James says um, even the demons believe and shudder, right? And so, so faith is, is more than just belief, but there's, there's, there's an act. You have to act on it. Here's a, um, yeah, you have to act in accordance with faith. But I think if we, if we think about it, I think there's another element or requirement to faith that we don't maybe, we don't maybe realize um, that, that faith requires weakness to have faith. I don't know if you thought about that. In most cases, it requires weakness. Um, meaning that where, is it, where, where there's an incapacity of ours is when we have to trust in something else, right? So, I mean, take even a chair, right? If I have a chair, um, faith is sitting in the chair because I, I can't do that on my own. Right. I could try, you know, I could just sit here like this and I would probably get really tired. And so I'm I'm weak to um, to sit in the chair. So I have to trust in it. So likewise, trusting in God means trusting him um, for something that we cannot do ourselves. Okay, faith in God is trusting him to do something that we can't do ourselves. And so uh, this passage in Isaiah is going to show us, or is going to put Israel in a position of complete helplessness. And God's going to deliver them. So uh, let's take a look at it. I think it's a powerful illustration of faith. And let me just pray.
and we'll, we'll jump into it. Father God, I pray that, uh, Lord, you would be here with us as we open up your word and um, just encourage everyone in here to to follow along in the Bible and to see, Lord, what you would have us see. And God, that we would live lives surrendered to you and trust you for all the hard things in our life. And God, that we would not turn to other things because you want us to rest in you fully. And we thank you that you... You teach us and show us how to do that. And so I just pray, pray, I pray you'd use this sermon um, to build our faith in you. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So <clears throat> the other thing that this story is going to show us is, is what happens to Assyria. So if you guys have been follow, following along with us um, in Isaiah, one thing that is repeated over and over again is that God is going to judge prideful Assyria. Now, Assyria, Assyria was the, the force or the nation that was conquering the world at that time. And God just kept saying, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to punish you. Uh, I'm, going, I'm going to destroy you. Uh, and so uh, this story tells this kind of what happens. Well, if God predicted it, well, what did it happen? And so we see that in this story. And so uh, let's pick up the scene in verse 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, uh, Sennacherib, king, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh uh, from Lashik to King Hezekiah. By the way, I'm going to just call that guy Rob. Um, from La, uh, Lachish uh, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him uh, Elikim, the son of Hilkah, who was over the household of Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So what's happened here is Assyria has actually destroyed all the cities in Israel except for one, Jerusalem. They have conquered all of them except one, Jerusalem. Uh, and so for Jerusalem, it is a hopeless situation, utterly hopeless. And, uh, however, they have decided to rebel against Assyria, despite the odds, um, despite the fact that they have no army that can defeat their, the Assyria's army, they decide to rebel. And so Assyria uh, I mean, Jerusalem does have walls, so it would be a fight for Assyria. So what they want to do is they, they want to try to get Israel to surrender. They want to try to uh, have them lose their fortitude or whatever it is that are that is causing them to rebel like they are. And so they want to demoralize Israel and to attack and subvert their faith. And so they send this guy, Rob. And um, Rob is, is a cunning fellow, and he, uh, we're going to have to swallow 15 verses of him mocking the Israelites for their faith and him trying to undermine their faith. We're going to have to swallow this for 15 verses, but God makes, goes through pains to record exactly what he said for us. Um, so uh, 
let's, let's kind of, I'm just going to walk us through his attack on faith. Okay. So I think I have some notes there. Um, this is, this is the attack on faith. So Hezekiah and Jerusalem are saying, we're going to trust in God. And here comes the attack. And so let's see how the attack unfolds. Um, first he says, where are you resting this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? And so first he just, he just uh, has astonishment. He's just shocked that uh, they would do this. And he can't believe, well, what is it that you're trusting in? And so I just wanted to point out, I think the way I'm going to work this, by the way, is I'm just going to walk us through this story and I'll make little application zingers or whatever. And then... I will, I will conclude with some of the, the main things I, I think I want us to see in this passage. So, so we see him uh, say, what are you resting this trust of your? He's astonished. And what struck me was that faith will often lead us to do things that on the surface seem foolish. That go against logic. And certainly this is, that's how this Assyrian felt. This is foolish what you're doing. So what he does to begin to undermine this trust is first he's going to go after the pious. He's going to go after the religious, the people of strong religious sentiments. And so he does that in verse six. He says, behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. And so Egypt if we're, if you've been following along, if you've been following along, Egypt represents a past failure on the part of the Israelites to trust God, and so the religious people, when they hear that, are going to be filled with shame. Oh, you're right. We're putting our faith in God, but not long ago we had messed up big time. Do we really believe God's going to save us now? So it's a powerful attack. Past failures can tend to make us feel unworthy of any kind of help from God. And so we begin the religious, so religious people, pious people begin to feel we need to prove ourselves to God before he'll help us. So he's trying to undermine their faith that God will help them in light of just recent failures. Secondly, Rob, he goes after the CEOs of Jerusalem. He goes after the CEOs of the community, the people who... Uh, have their act together, rely on skill and planning and competency. And he says in verse 8, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? What he's doing is he's mocking them and pointing out to them that they have no skill to be able to defeat Assyria. They can't even produce their own horsemen. They're trusting in Egypt to provide it. And Egypt can't even help them. How do they, how they possibly think they can defeat Assyria? Uh, and so he's, and so I think that the attack on faith there is to say, well, we gotta have our, all our, our ducks lined up first. We have to have enough skill in order to um, see in order to see success happen. Uh, and so the CEOs of Jerusalem 
would say, uh, yeah, he's right about that. What, what are we doing? Okay. So then moving on, he kind of intensifies his attack and he goes after, I'll call them the Americans of, of the city. He goes after the Americans. And what I mean is the people who are really independent, the people who are really, uh, have a hard time with authority. And so, uh, here's what he says. Uh, let's see, where are we? Let me move on. Verse 14, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. So what he's doing, I think, is, is uh, first of all, Hezekiah is leading the charge and rallying people to trust in God. I think all great movements of faith happen, first of all, in a community. So Jerusalem are standing strong together. But what's really behind that is their, that their, their leader, Hezekiah, has, has called them to trust in God and is himself trusting in God. And so Rob knows that uh, the best way to, one of the best ways to weaken them is to divide them against their, against their leader. Um, okay, so he goes after the, the independence. And so I think what I was trying to say there was that um, there are, will be people who are going to have a hard time. They're going to say, yeah, why are we trusting in this one guy, Hezekiah? Um, why are we should, we should not listen to him. Um, and so there's a, there is a tendency in us to begin to want to, to divide or rebel against our leadership. And so I think Rob is playing on that, uh, and trying to, uh, trying to undermine Hezekiah's leadership. Okay. So then we move on and he, then he, he offers what I would think is one of the more powerful, um, attacks is he kind of offers the American dream to them. Right? So he, uh, he wants to divide them and he's, he's, he's testing their, uh, their competency and, and their, he's making them feel guilty. And finally he offers this American dream or not finally as one other thing he's going to do, but and listen. And here he says in verse 16, do not listen to Hezekiah for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. And so do you guys, I mean, do you, do you feel that? I felt that when I was thinking of what it would be like for them is they face destruction and here he offers them comfort, security, peace. And it just struck me that this is, this is the lie of sin is come and enjoy yourself. Find what you're looking for. Oh yeah, you'll become my slave, but don't worry about that. Right? Cause he sneaks it in there. Verse 17. I'm going to give you you're going to have wine and food until they come to take you away to a land like your own with food and wine. It's deceptive. And so our faith will want to leave God for what's right in front of us. And 
what seems to be the clearest route to security, health, and happiness. So they have to fight that, and that's powerful. But finally, he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He has one last appeal. So he appeals to the rationals. He appeals to like the moderns, the people who look, look, believe in their eyes and their senses and their power of reason and logic. And he says in verse 18, Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of, um, didn't look that word up, uh, Sarah, how do you say it? Okay. <laughs> have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? And so what he's saying is just look at the facts. Use your eyes. Look at what's happened. All the other people trusted in their gods and all the other people were destroyed. Makes sense, right? So in essence, he wrapped up his argument by saying, if all the other gods didn't save them, then what makes you think your God will save you? But for Rob, logic turned in stupidity, did it not? When he made the last asinine point. Because he assumed that the God of Israel is like all the other gods. So ironically, the smart logic, the smart logical diplomat made a blind leap of faith and assumed that the God of Israel was just like every other deity. So the question now is, how does Israel respond? Uh, Verse 21 says, they were silent and answered him not a word. They didn't cave in. And the reason that they didn't cave in, I think, it says here, is that they um, they listened to the king's command. Do not answer him. They were loyal to Hezekiah. So um, what we're going to see is they're going to give um, they're going to give Hezekiah the message and then Hezekiah is going to respond. So that's what we're going to look at is how does Hezekiah respond? What is the response of faith to this kind of attack? Um, and so, for those of you who don't know, Hezekiah is kind of like a breath of fresh air in Israel at this time. There weren't too many kings who trusted in God, but Hezekiah did. And so Hezekiah was kind of like a David, um, and he was following God. Uh, interesting to note that even despite his faithfulness, um, bad things still happened, and Israel still uh, received um, we're still in this situation, this bad situation. Uh, but so let's see how Hezekiah responds. Um, and I, I guess I'll just make two observations is the first thing he does uh, is he, well, he goes to God actually, but I'm just going to make this up. Op- my, my first observation is that he acknowledges it. It says, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. So tearing his clothes and covering himself with sackcloth, um, that is an act of extreme anguish. He didn't, Hezekiah doesn't puff himself up, doesn't try to ignore the situation. He lets himself feel the pain of it. He lets himself experience 
how difficult this situation is. Um, and so, and then he acknowledges it and he says, uh, Hezekiah asked for prayer and this is what he says. This is a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. So we kind of get a window into how Hezekiah feels about this situation. Um, he calls it a day of distress, rebuke, and disgrace. Um, and so I want to dwell on that just for a second because um, it just really doesn't get much worse than that. And I think we all will face times like this. And I think it's helpful to be able to say what it is. He calls it a day of distress, which means they're in a predicament causing extreme emotional turmoil. It's a day of distress. Something is happening outside of them, outside of, of Jerusalem. Something is happening that um, is causing distress. Then he calls it a day of rebuke. A day of rebuke. Carrying the idea that it, somehow it's their fault. That somehow their bad predicament is kind of because of them. So he feels the rebuke of the situation. Sometimes we get into really bad situations and have the added feeling that it's, that it's our fault. And I think that's true, isn't it? That sometimes we have hard things that happen to us and we don't admit that partly it's because we've screwed up in some way. And so he calls it a day of disgrace. So not only is it hard and it's kind of my fault, there's disgrace, there's shame. Gosh, could you imagine feeling like that? Maybe some of us already have felt that way or maybe are feeling that way. And it's okay. In fact, I think it's good. I think it's good to acknowledge that. So he concludes um, that there is no strength left. <clears throat> he says they are completely helpless. They can't even bring forth children who are about to be born, which is just a metaphor to say we have no resources to do anything anymore. Um, okay. So he feels the intensity of the situation, experiences the extreme anguish, but he doesn't cave. And it may, because he says in verse 4, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rob, whom his master, the king of Syria, has sent to mock the living God. Hezekiah takes hope in one fact, that the king has mocked the living God. <clears throat> By the way, would someone mind trying to find me water? Is there anyone? Sorry for the break. Oh. <clears throat> Wife to the rescue. <laughs> she does rescue me, let me tell you. I don't have time to go into it, but I was having a hard week, crumpled up in my bed, and Jamie came in and encouraged me and strengthened me. Praise God. Now she brought me water. Okay. Um, <clears throat> one, last, one last note, though. Um, although he's taking hope, Hezekiah has to endure one last attack. Um, he has to endure one last uh, attack. Uh, and that is in verse eight. Um, basically, what happened was, is 
they were the army was encamped around them, and then they left um, because of a rumor that they had heard. Uh, it says eight, the the Rob, Rob returned and found the king of Assyria fighting in Libna. So they had they had left, um, but in the meantime, Hezekiah receives a letter directly from the king himself, Sennacherib, um, saying, "I'm coming for you." And so uh, the the essence. I'm not going to go into it. The, the, in letter, the essence says, "Let's do away with this religious business, you and I." I mean, come on, Hezekiah. You really think your God is going to deliver your people? Do you really think that? So I was struck by the fact that I think um, it's true that leaders will receive the most powerful attacks. If you're leading your family, if you're leading a home group, if you're leading the church, is I think the enemy will go after you in a personal way. And I know I feel that. At times, I've felt that in ministry, being in ministry eight years. Sometimes I struggle with, am I really doing all this for God? Am I really doing this for this religious belief of mine? I begin to um, just downgrade this faith. And I believe it's the enemy attacking me just like Sennacherib attacked Ezekiah. Um, and begin to question, how is this really worth it? Is it worth it? Um, and so we see Hezekiah, the second way that Hezekiah responds, the first one was he acknowledges, but I think one of the beauty of this story is how Hezekiah responds in prayer. And so he takes his response straight to God. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the uh, cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste all the nations of their lands. And have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So Hezekiah, he knows how to pray, I would say. And I think it was, it was I think it's a great takeaway for us. That when Hezekiah receives or is confronted in this way, that his response is, is not to um, try to escape it in some way or not to try to figure out how he's going to overcome it. He immediately takes it before God. He lays it before God. And I love that imagery that he takes the letter, right? Not the Bible. He takes the letter and just lays it. Before, before God. Because he believes that God is going to hear his prayers. He believes that there is a God who is listening to him. And he believes that there is a God who is powerful to deliver them. And so that really is all that's left for Hezekiah to do. 
So I think God had brought them to this place where there was nothing left but their faith in God, which the only form that faith could take was not action, but prayer. That was all they had. They could not do a single thing. They could not raise up a single amount of force. They had one strategy, prayer, to a living God. And so then God answers. And he says something amazing. Verse 21, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. So that's, that's amazing. And let's not miss that. Where God says, because you prayed. God gives Isaiah, Hezekiah's prayer a cause and effect relationship. You prayed, cause, effect, I work. And so I think it's clear that God uses prayer to affect history. God uses prayer to affect history. And I would add eternity. Because we know that Jesus says that he wants our fruit to abide so that when we pray according to his name, he would give us anything that we pray for. God intends for our fruit to abide for eternity through prayer. So in, in, his, um, uh, in God's kind of uh, response to Hezekiah, in his final judgment, we get a final kind of clear enunciation of his beef with the Assyrians. Um, in essence, he says, uh, so yeah, he, he, we get a clear enunciation of his beef with the Assyrians. Um, let me just read it, actually. Verse 25. Uh, well, verse, I'll start in verse 24, actually. By your servants, you have mocked the Lord. He's talking to Assyria. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recess, recesses of Lebanon, to cut down as tall as cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. So he's quoting the attitude that Assyria has, and it's essentially, look at all the great things I've done. It's pride. So here we have an exposition of what pride is at heart is it's saying that anything that I have accomplished is because I've done it. It doesn't give God the credit. I remember I was watching Jamie and I have been watching um, this series about a carrier, the carrier Nimitz. And there's a, they interview the pilots when they're going to war and uh, one of the pilots, um, so what, one of the pilots is talking about how do you handle danger? Like, how do, you, how do you handle the stress of it And when you're up there? And he just says, you know, I know some people believe in a God. And, yeah, I believe in God. But when it comes to, to, to being in that plane, I rely on what I know. And I'm going to get myself out of that situation. And so I was just astounded that he could at the same time 
and one and one sentence quote his faith in God. And yet when when push come to shove, he said, I will get myself out of this situation. And so I just want to read this in case, and just so that God would convict our hearts in case that's in us. And I want us to examine. Do we go through life like that? Do we go through life where we say we have faith in God? When push comes to shove, what we're really trusting in is our skills, as our, our plans, our ability to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. And just an extra warning is some of us may not feel this way about like Assyria. Because when I read this, I didn't resonate too strongly with it, that Assyria felt that way. That's because I just haven't accomplished a lot in my life yet. I mean, Assyria had taken over the world. And so here's, here's what I'm saying is that um, success is what will show you or what we need to be careful of. I think success is when we start to say, wow, look what I've done. I think my pride is kind of the opposite. And some of you may resonate with this is that instead of saying, look what I've done, I say, God can't use me. It's the opposite. It's pride. It's in the opposite way. Instead of saying, look what I've done. I focus on what, what I can't do, and, and both don't take into account what God can do. If you say, look what, I, look what I've done, you're not taking into account what God is doing. If you say, look, I can't do it, you're not taking into, into account what God can do. Both are pride. But this pride is a pride that says, look at what I've done. And it came with success. Um, uh, but we see that God declares emphatically that is, is Syria, you're wrong. I've done it. Verse 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded. And have become like plants of the field and like tender grass. Like grass on the housetops blighted before it's grown. So God says, I've done it. And what we have here is a God who clearly reveals himself as the controller of history. God is not... Surprised by what Assyria has done. He planned it. It was his idea. They just didn't give him credit for it. And so part of believing in God, I think, is trusting and acknowledging that what happens, God is the one who has planned it. Um. Okay, so the result is after he says these things, he, he, he says, okay, sir, here's what's going to happen. And he tells him, I'm going to drive, he says, I'm going to drive them back. I will put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. So kind of get how God views Assyria because of their pride. Um, the imagery paints a picture of God treating them like an animal or specifically like a donkey. And so I liked one commentator said this. Uh, I thought it was funny. It's, I think it's true. It's a vast come down to go from self-made ruler of the world to stubborn mule. Or perhaps more accurately, Yahweh's ass. 
So that's kind of what we are when we say we've done it and we don't give credit to God. Um, okay. And one last observation about this section uh, is that first I think I said earlier that that prayer is a cause and effect relationship that God caused things to because we, we prayed God caused things to happen. But then he says in verse, um, he says in verse 33, he says, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. So on one hand, he says, I will do this because you prayed. But on the other, other hand, he says, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. And so what I think that means is that God coordinates our prayers with his will. God coordinates our prayers with his will. So I don't want us to go too far and say that, um, take too much responsibility for what happens through prayer, but that God is still in control, but that he coordinates, um, his will with our prayers. And so God defends the city for his own sake and the sake of David. Um, Hezekiah in Jerusalem did nothing to deserve God's deliverance of their city. God is saying, I'm doing it for my own name and for the sake of my servant, David. What that means is that Jerusalem, because of his promise to David, Jerusalem was under covenant love. And so when they appealed to God, he answered not because of anything, any merit of their own, but because God had promised that David, that uh, an ancestor of David would sit on the throne. And I think this is a great picture of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because God has taken away our sin, we can have confidence that we can go to him, that we could pray to him. No matter what we've done in the past, no matter what we're struggling with, we can have confidence to draw near to God and know that he hears us because Jesus has taken away our sin and has put in us the Holy Spirit. And it's a spirit that cries, Abba, Father. So through Jesus, God invites us not just to trust him, but to have intimacy with him. So when we look at the throne here, when we look at Hezekiah going to the throne, we might miss this, that it's, it's him going into this temple, praying to a God enthroned in the heavens, which is true. But now, but now through Christ, God is, is also our father. And so we can experience intimacy with him through prayer and go to him. And so here are, the, here are the things I just want us to take away. Um, just some things that I think are true that I think will help us. And the first thing is, is that God will deliver you from your strength. God will deliver you from your strength. And so um, what I mean here, let me, let me try to explain this. I, what God says here is that he brought them, he caused Jerusalem to come to this point where they have no strength. 
And when we, and when we think about that, look what the results were. It was one of the most powerful displays of faith in God that Israel ever received. And so the thing that gets in the way of us experiencing God's deliverance is that we're too strong. We have too much a sense of what we can do in our own power. And so God in love will remove that from you and show you that you are not God. He is God. And so um, hard things will come into your life. I've been experiencing this. Um, and this truth is, is what gets me through it because where, where is the hope in hardship? Or is there any greater hope in hardship than knowing that God is working it for our good? Uh, and so, like I said, you know, being this year in ministry, when I, when I was sent to San Jose a couple years ago, I honestly had the idea that I was a pretty good leader. And I thought I would do a good job. And uh, things didn't go like I had hoped or had planned. And these last couple weeks have been the case the most extremely. And so um, it's gotten to the point where, you know, I don't want to draw a picture like things are terrible, or, but it's to the point where I've just, when we relied on one thing that hasn't happened, um, certain people feel upset about certain things and there's nothing I can do about it. And I, and I remember I just, I felt so weak. I just was laying on my bed and I just couldn't, I just didn't want to do anything. And Jamie walks in and she sees me and, and we talk about it and, and she, she knew what my sermon was and she says, well, Paul, looks like God's delivering you from your strength. And so she repeated my verse to me, but it was true because for the first time I was beginning to realize what it means that strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. For the first time I was beginning to realize what that means, that my strength is in the Lord when I felt I had no strength. You can't feel that until you experience helplessness. And so, um, this ultimately, I think, is the message of the cross. And the message that Christ gives to us. Jesus says, Is anyone heavy laden or burdened? Let him come to me, and he will find rest. He also says, It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Finally, he says, While we were yet weak, Christ died for the ungodly. God sent Jesus to the weak. He sent Jesus to those who know they have no moral strength of themselves. He came for the ungodly. And so if you are here today and you realize your weakness, that is God. If you feel like you have no sense of strength morally before God, he sent Jesus to you for us that you could have peace with God and know that God is for you. He sent he who did not spare his own son. How much more will he give us all things? And so before we can experience God's deliverance, we have to experience our weakness. We have to embrace it. 
so that we can find God. We have to embrace our weakness as sinners before a holy God in need of a Savior. And we have to embrace our weakness to control human history, to control events around us. We have to trust God not just to save us. But we have to trust God wants to trust him with every area of our life because God invites us to have a relationship with him. And he's God. He says, I want you to experience what it's like to have God for you. So he'll make us weak to do that. He'll deliver us from our strength. Um, something else that I want us to see here is that faith in God, I think, most fundamentally looks like prayer. So, let me, what I mean by that is, um, what, how do you know you have, what does it mean to have faith? Um, and I think it's believing, but I think what, 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 sh- what it, when it becomes tr- real, when your faith becomes real, I think is with prayer, is with your words to God, because um, I think it, words demonstrate that it's God's power alone and not your strength. Okay, and so, so faith in God looks like prayer. And, and I think one of the fundamental understandings of faith in Jesus is that our salvation is not just a system of belief or believing in truth. It is those things. It's just more than that. It's believing in a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Salvation is a person. And so salvation is really a personal relationship. And so God's invitation to us, this is a quote from Tim Keller, I love this, um, is Jesus saying, look what I've done to come near to you. Now draw near to me. I don't want to be a concept. I want to be a friend. I don't want to be a concept. I want to be a friend. And so faith in God looks, I think, first like prayer. And I guess I would, I would, I would say, um, I would contrast that with actions. Um, because I think uh, if, if the essence of, our, of, of salvation is a relationship with God, then prayer is an ult- the ultimate expression of that. Because you're talking to God. And then finally, my last point is that words are therefore God's power and strategy for war. Words are God's power and strategy for war. Where I got that from was in the beginning, Rob said something ironic. I don't know if you guys caught it. In verse 4, he says, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? Because all Israel had were their diplomats that they sent out. And so he says, do you think words are mere strategy and power for war? And from a military standpoint only, you would say, no, that's not power and strategy for war. But when God is fighting for you, when you can have God act on your behalf, then words are absolutely power and strategy for war. And is that not what we saw happen? 
He's right. Rob criticized them. Do you think mere words are power and strategy for war? And how did Hezekiah defeat them? With words. He prayed. That's all he had. He prayed. And God defeated Assyria. I think it was like 180,000 troops he's destroyed in one day. Um, So what God wants to accomplish through you, he wants to accomplish through prayer. What God wants to accomplish through you, he wants to accomplish through prayer because he wants you to know and he wants you to know beyond a, a shadow of a doubt that it is his power working. And so when you act and don't pray, there will always be this thought in your mind that you did it. And so I think that's why the most special moments in our life, our most deepest trials of faith happen when we are in situations where we cannot do a single thing to make it better. So, um, maybe we have a really stressful job situation that you can't control. Well, I think prayer is God's power and strategy for war. Is there a hard person in your life? You can't control that. You can't do anything about that. You don't like this person. You just can't do anything to, 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 to overcome that. Prayer is God's power and strategy for war. Financial crisis, same thing. And I think most importantly, is there an ugly area of sin in your life? Is there an ugly area of sin in your life? Prayer is God's power and strategy for war. You know, when you go to verse 40, or chapter 40, God says something kind of crazy to Jerusalem. He says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God came to defeat sin. And what this passage says is that war is done. It's ended. The problem is, is we don't often feel that way. And it's, it doesn't often reflect what's true in our life because we still sin. Okay, we still struggle with selfishness, pride, arrogance, fear. Man, I struggle with fear. I struggle with having little love for people. I struggle with being ashamed of the gospel. How am I to fight this thing? This says right here that my warfare is ended. And so let me, let me just close with this analogy. Because I think God wants to comfort us and have us fight this battle of sin. Because he has won the battle. Here's how he's done it. I've been reading a book about um, uh, the uh, Desert Storm. Norman Schwarzkopf, General. And, uh, what I, what I discovered or what you what you, what you, the way it unfolded was Kuwait was taken over by Iraq. If you remember, and Iraq had 500,000 troops, it's huge. And so, um, desert shield was the operation to defend Saudi Arabia. Okay. And so the U S brought in enough troops to defend an attack but what he kept making the point was we couldn't actually go on the offensive against Kuwait. No way. And so um, what happens is they start doing a troop buildup, a troop buildup, a troop buildup. 
and Schwarzkopf made sure that they had enough troops that they knew they were going to demolish the enemy when the time came. They knew they would demolish the enemy. And so uh, before the war started, the war was over. Before the war started, the war was over. All the troops were there. And it was just a matter of executing the orders. It was just a matter of, of executing the orders. And so I think that is a picture of how we fight sin. God, the war is over. God has put in us his Holy Spirit. He has given us every resource we need to defeat sin. Okay, the Holy Spirit is better than any M1 tank, better than any Apache helicopter. And God has aimed the Holy Spirit at our sin. And it's released through prayer. When Schwarzkopf said, you go, you go, you go, boom, it all happened. And so the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but God wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust us even with our sin. And so he doesn't just overcome our sin. He doesn't just take it all the way. He says, trust me with it. Let Watch me work. It's a relationship. And so we pray to God. We go to God. And then his Holy Spirit is released into our life. And we'll see victory after victory after victory in sin in our life. Which ultimately, the final victory is when Christ comes and sin will be no more. So, all right. Well, that's, that's what I have for you guys. Um, and so, ooh, it's 11.45. I told Dave I would be gutsy here and I'd take questions. Um, if there are any questions or anything that you think needs to be clarified, uh, maybe I said something. It was like you knew what I was trying to say, but just didn't come out quite clear. Feel free to clarify or ask a question. We'll just take five minutes and then Dave will close with it. No, we won't close with the song because it's running out of time. Does anyone have any questions for me? And to please, I like questions, so don't don't be afraid. And if you don't have questions, that's okay. <laughs> Good question, Sean. Thanks for asking that. So just to summarize, I think the question is, um, because I had said that the Holy Spirit is all the resources we need to defeat sin in our life and that the warfare, our warfare has ended. Um, But what about this, the reality that some people have struggled with God and with their sin and haven't seen a lot of progress? Um, How do we handle that? Well, I think, I mean, the first thing that came to mind is keep going. <laughs> but I think what, because uh, I've, I've been there where I was struggling with sin in a way that wasn't, um, I wasn't seeing progress. And so my prayer was, God, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. And it didn't, um, but what do I do in the meantime while I feel like I'm not being delivered? How do I, how do I stay strong in my faith? Um, how do I, because actually I remember I was actually involved with ministry. I was involved with campus crusade as a student and I would struggle with sin, go home. Um, and then I'd go to the crusade meeting, right? It's like, how could I reconcile that? And I kept, I went to Bible study and it's like, how do I do that? And in the light of the the fact that I know what's happening, um, I know what's going on in, in secret. And it wasn't that I wasn't convicted or, or hiding it. Um, I was convicted and I, I was confessing it to people, but I just had to claim 
continuously by faith that um, I was God's son. I had to claim by faith that there is eternal life in no other name. Um, and that if anyone does sin, right, I always have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins. And so for me, and I think for anyone in that situation, your, your joy has to start with, your comfort has to start with, not that you're released from that sin, but that you're forgiven from that sin. And that, and that God is testifying to you that you are his. And then continue to seek God's deliverance, confess it to others. Um, but I think as, as, the, as the love of God begins to go deeper in, into your heart, this, the, the, the strength of sin will begin to be released from you as your experience of God deepens and your desire for fellowship with God deepens. The sin will become less and less, have less and less a grip on you. And so there may just need to, you may, there may need to accept, accept the reality that if you are struggling with a habitual sin, that it is a weakness of faith. And maybe I'm wrong on that. And what I mean by weakness of faith is not to say you're not saved. It's just to say that God wants to deepen and needs to grow how much you are experiencing him. Okay. So for example, like even prayer, why don't we pray? I, there's only one answer is because my faith just isn't that strong. If my faith in God was, was strong, I would pray for everything, but I don't. And so I have to assign, I have to, the Bible says, Look at yourself with sober judgment according to the faith God has assigned you. And so if I am struggling with sin, I just, I think, accept where I'm at in my faith. That God has me there and wants me to trust him to increase my faith, to root out my sin. So I don't know. That was, that was a long answer to a hard question. All right, well, I'll close this in prayer and feel free to come up and talk to me afterwards. Um, Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen us according to your word today to, to trust you in every area of our life. And God, to reflect the reality of your power in this world, in our life, by praying to you for everything that we can think of to bring before you. Strengthen our faith to be a church that seeks you first with words, let words be the power and strategy of war of this church, God, so that your power would be known in our midst and in our hearts, God, and that we would not boast in anything but in your son, Jesus Christ, who has who is king and is reigning over all history, over all eternity in heaven. And so, Lord, uh, I thank you and I lift all these things up to you in your name. Amen.